Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. is taken from Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 and 21 to 24. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because it belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see us all, and particularly welcome if you are here with us, worshiping with us for the first time, coming to our Christmas service. We really enjoy having you around. Um, Christmas is a time of, um, I don't know how it is for you, but do, do you ever get a smell, the smell of Christmas? Right? It comes sometime around December 13, 14. All of a sudden, your wife is always happy with you. You know, all through the year, it wasn't like that. But now, Christmas, it's all around. And you know, here at City Church, we call ourselves a gospel-centered urban church. And it's really what that means, essentially, is that we're crazy about Jesus, we're crazy about people, and we're crazy about Lagos. And so if we're crazy about Jesus, we have to think about Christmas. That's what this is all about. But at the same time, We've, the sermon you hear today is actually the last in a series, an Advent series. The word Advent just means coming, coming of um, an important thing or, a, or an important person, a notable thing or a notable person. And in this book of Luke that we, all our readings have been taken from, and this last reading, uh, our sermon text has been taken from, it's really a focus on people, it's G, on Jesus, but Jesus' relationship to people are outside on the margins. And so in our first sermon in the series, we looked at one of those people at the barren. 
the second sermon was on what you call hardly professional or semi-skilled laborers, what we call blue workers, uh, blue-collar workers. And the third one is on oppressed women. So this final sermon series will be looking at another one of those things. Now, if you know that famous song, it starts with uh, the words, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, now it depends on who you're asking. If you're asking those who, are, who live beyond Ajad, they'll tell you it's the most traffic time of the year. If you're asking those who shop, they'll say it's the most frantic time of the year. But if you're asking ShopRite or Spa, they'll say it's the most profitable time of the year. I often wonder why that idea didn't come to me to set up something like that. But, you know, it's a time where people want to celebrate. We all want to celebrate because, you know, let's face it, life can be dark. It can just be a drag, a slog. And so the wanting to release, to celebrate, is in all of us. And that's why we look forward towards Christmas, towards the end of the year. At least we made it to the end of the year. So let us celebrate. Everyone is celebrating. The most wonderful time of the year. Except it isn't for everyone. It depends on who you are. You see, because it's one thing to have the desire to celebrate... It's another thing to have the means to celebrate. A large section of our city's um, idea of Christmas, even as we speak, is anything but feasting, singing, community, presents, lights, and laughter. Just think about the hospitalized patients who cannot afford the discharge bill. The falsely accused and imprisoned inmates who cannot afford bail. Or the disabled orphan who keeps being overlooked for adoption because of his condition. What's Christmas like to them? They have a very, very different view. And it's really largely because they are plagued by something that this family that we read about in the uh, last reading is very, very familiar with. They are plagued with the scourge of poverty. Now, poverty, or I'm talking about the poor today, um, Let's give a good definition for it, because most times everyone says, me, I'm a poor man, or you know, I'm a poor man. Dangote is, uh, is, is, is poor when, when compared to uh, Bill Gates, isn't it? Right? Imagine Dangote actually saying he's poor. But the poor, by the poor I mean those unable to afford things, basic things like food, housing, clothing, toiletries, utility bills, without getting into debt and without the ability to raise themselves out of that situation. They cannot afford those basic things without getting into debt, but also they don't have the ability to get themselves out of that situation. Does Christmas have anything to say to them? As does Christmas have anything to say to us? Well, you bet it does. If it didn't, I won't be standing here today. Huh? So it would just be a waste. Now, so I want us to consider this message, God's portion, and we'll look at it in two, two sections. The first one is son of the poor, and the second one is son of God. If you're wondering why people are laughing, they, uh, normally one other section is missing in our normal sermons. So they are so happy. This one is going to end well today. Just you wait and see. All right, so let's take the first one, son of the poor, son of the poor. Now, as I was saying before, this is one of those um, wonderful times of the year, but Nigerians are very funny people. Because something happens to us this time of the year. Something happens to us this time of the year. Now, 
I saw this joke recently, and it's very, very simple. Nigerians are very funny people because from January to November, especially those who are migrants into the city of Lagos, what do you do? From January to November, you are always praying against all those people in your village that are controlling you. Your bad fortune in the city, I know that auntie of mine. She's a witch. She is the, in fact, I know someone, uh, someone's maid who recently gave all the money she was saving up to, some, uh, to a so-called prophet. The prophet came to me and said, ah, you are not enjoying life, isn't it? He said, yeah. He said, there's someone in your village. I knew it. So he started giving the guy money, giving the guy money. He was praying for her that it was, everything was going to be fine. Obviously, what happened, she didn't see the guy again. And these same people who keep praying against all those people in the village at this time of the year, what happens in December? They spend their money, and they still go back and visit them. Madness. So there's an exodus in the city. And you notice also in the text that was read, there was an exodus from where these people were. Joseph and Mary were going back to Nazareth, as we see in verse 4. But they were not going back because they wanted to go and celebrate with people. No. Actually, what happened, if you read verses 1 to 3, there was a Roman emperor. And at this time, the Jewish people were under that Roman empire. The empire was so large, and it took various kingdoms that had kings before, and now they were all submitted under the emperor, and the emperor forced everyone to go back to their towns or their cities of birth because they wanted to have a census. Now, it wasn't a census just to count the people. No, it was a forced eviction, if you like, so that he could count them, so that he could tax them. So they were not happy because they were forced to go back and register. It was quite humiliating. But at the same time, it wasn't a very affordable thing for them. Why do we know it wasn't affordable for them? Well, because they were poor. They were very poor. Look down at verse 22 to 24. It says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to, the, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, this is what is happening. They're Jews. And according to Jewish rites, if you have a child, one, that child is going to be consecrated on the eighth day. If he's a boy, he's going to be circumcised. But the mother is now seen as ceremonially unclean. And so they had cleaning kind of rights. So she had to stay away for 40 days. She was unclean for 40 days. And after that, she was meant to present a sacrifice. The sacrifice was a lamb and a dove. That was the sacrifice that you're meant to give. It's just like if we're in church and they say, okay, it's time for Thanksgiving. And oh, we know everybody bring your Thanksgiving of 25,000 naira and you know, you are going to wear your 25,000 naira and car, and you are going to bring it out. But then, if you can't afford it, well, we have this 2,000 naira one. And so, there, if you are poor, you couldn't afford a lamb and a dove, what do you have to do? You can buy a pair of pigeons or a pair of doves. And so, that's their, their own small thing. Imagine how humiliating that is. Imagine that kind of psychological trauma because your poverty is so publicly on display. See, the thing about poverty is that it's not just the physical needs that you're unable to meet. That is really bad and probably the worst thing, but there's also the psychological trauma. 
Just think about the embarrassment of being told about your body odor, knowing you cannot afford deodorant regularly. Or your child, your four-year-old child, who asks you why you always have to enter Okada to church while his friend's family have a nice car. Or think about being always corrected every step of the way by your accent or your grammar, you are always mocked by your boss's children. Think about what that does to you. You see, here in the city, we have a phenomenon. It's called the urban poor. I was recently in Dubai. And you know, if you go to the place, if you went three years ago, and you now went this year, it's just teeming with new skyscrapers. It's a wonderful place to be at. And Lagos has this vision of being the new Dubai. It's one of the visions that we have. It's a fantastic vision. The only problem is if you understand what happened in Dubai and you start seeing what's happening in Lagos, we have this phenomenon where if we are trying to bring up this new vision that we're seeing, there are, there's also consequences or there are what you call byproducts. And this byproduct has largely been the inhumane treatment of the urban poor. I think of Folashade Elibio Mayor. She was a self-sustaining small businesswoman living in a sand slum in Ebute Ilaje. I don't even know where that is. She was caught recently leaning down to inspect the damage done to one of her boats by security forces, after which she began to cry. This is a woman that's living in a sand slum. She's finally been able to get boats to create a business that sustains herself, sustains the family, sustains the children are now in school so that they cannot be as poor as her. And now the security forces have now damaged all the boats. They destroyed my boats and my husband's boats. And now I cannot pay the school fees so the children have been withdrawn from school, she says. I am old. What am I going to do? Now, not only is her livelihood taken away, but the thing that eventually can bring those children out of that poverty has also been taken from under her. Now, unfortunately, this is not uncommon. We have about 40 communities with about 300,000 people who live with the threat of eviction hanging around the each of those communities' necks. I think of another guy. His name is Koto Kakini. He's an old fisherman in Agoigun, a slum whose shacks are built on a floating rubbish dump. Understand that. This is a slum. There is rubbish that floats, and then people have then built houses there. He says, when we leave to catch fish, we are afraid something will happen to our wives and children at home. He says, maybe the government will send agents to demolish everything or scatter our families. Now, maybe this is a perception. Maybe it's a figment of, a figment of his imagination. I'll tell you what, every time I go to bed at night, I don't think whether somebody's coming to evict me. And most of us don't. You see, his fears aren't unfounded. Many of us would have heard of the recent destruction of a whole community in Otodogbame and by security forces. This was despite the fact that the court had halted this destruction. And they went in with bulldozers, fires, 
fire, and some people would even say bullets. Now, I'm not trying to paint our government as being inhumane. There are reasons that the government gave for actually doing these things. Chief of those is security. Another one would be that if we are trying to be a model city, what kind of model city is going to have slums and shanties on display? Especially when they are in the very wonderful parts, the water, you know, the, the, the plush water uh, areas of this place. Imagine what that can do for if you can buy, put up some luxurious apartments there. We have to ask ourselves this question. Because actually, I do share the government's ambition to lift us up out of poverty. You want to create a city that is beautiful, that can attract investment, so that if people do that, eventually with the taxes, we can help with the poor. There is an argument for it. But the question is this. We must never, ever miss the distinction between eliminating poverty and eliminating the poor. Because really, when you say shanties and slums are... You know, there are things that we'd like to get rid of. What really are they? I take the quote from Ulutime Adikbe. She says this. What is a slum if it isn't an organic response to an acute housing deficit and income inequality? What is a shanty if it isn't a person making a home for themselves against all odds? No one's taking care of them. They have nowhere to sleep. And so they bring the things that they have and put it together. And we look at that and say, what a nuisance. A breeding place for arm robbers. Well, if your schools are being destroyed, your health centers are being destroyed, your means of livelihood is being destroyed, and you need to survive, why wouldn't you turn to crime? We must ask ourselves this question. We have a dream, yes, but must the price of my dream be the nightmare of others? You see, the God in the Bible, unlike some of the other gods that existed at that time, he cares desperately for the poor, and he expects his people to do so. You know, many times when people think about church, they think about, oh, that place where they'll tell me that I'm a sinner because I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, uh, that place where they'll tell me I'm a sinner because I get drunk regularly. Yeah, that's actually true. But those are not the only things that the Bible calls sin. Think about the man called Job. Job was experiencing a very difficult time in his life, and his friends were telling him that it was because of sin. Now, Job, at one point, says, look, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not look at a woman lustfully. He knew what sexual purity was about. He called that a sin. But listen to what he says in Job chapter 31. I'll read some verses there. If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded the destruction from God, and for the fear of his splendor, I could not do such things. Why? For these also would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Do you get what he's saying? It's not just your sexual immorality. That is sin. But your treatment of those who are underprivileged in the society also, Job is saying, if I do it in this way, that could also bring the wrath of God. That is how the God of the Bible thinks about the poor. 
And Christians who are meant to be his children are called to also have that same kind of care towards them. You see, notice that is why in this book, there is a focus. God is about to do something very important in this book of Luke. And what does he do? He focuses our attention on a family, a family that is very poor. Again, I say this is not into government bashing. I want all of us to think about this. But they have, God cares as we want to create wealth. He cares about how we give dignity to the poor. This important baby Jesus was born to poor people under poverty entrenching government conditions. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why is he important? And why is the focus on this poor family the best thing for the poor and for all of us? Second point, son of God. So son of the poor and son of God. So, remember, like many in our city, Joseph and Mary were poor Jews under an oppressive Roman Empire. Now, because they were they, they are, the Roman Empire, and you would have soldiers all around, eventually the Jews saw the Romans to be their main enemy. They were like a national enemy. So when Jews thought about prophecies of deliverance, they were immediately, immediately understood, who are we going to be delivered from? Our enemies here. And they understood that there was coming someone that was going to help remove them from that condition. Look at in just in one chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 68 to 71, Zechariah says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. So redeem. He has raised up a horn for salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. When they thought of their enemies and the people that hated them, they had somebody in mind. And so when you get later into chapter 2, this word, this Greek word called prodekestai. Everyone say prodekestai. Sounded nice when you said it. Say it again, prodekestai. It makes you all sound smarter than you are. Right? You now know Greek. But what is prodekestai? Prodekestai really is waiting in expectation of receiving something. It's not the normal politician's promise. That once I come here, I'm going to build 200 roads. Not that kind of expectation. We kind of say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just give us rights and we'll vote for you. But this is, uh, I know this person is coming. I know this thing. It's like when you are waiting for your wedding day and you count seven days, six days, five. You are expecting to get married. You don't expect that your bride will come and run away, right? I hope that has never happened to any of you. May it not happen to you in Jesus' name. <laughs> so they are waiting. And so you read about uh, Simeon, an old man, waiting, prodekestai, for the consolation of Israel. Chapter uh, verse 25 of 2. Or Anna in verse, two, uh, verse 38, who was looking forward to, prodekestai, to the redemption of Jerusalem. And you know, the poor in our society also, prodekestai, they wait for deliverance. Those in Ototogramme would have thought, this court order will stop the bulldozers. So they were prodekestai for the court order to come. Or maybe that child, finally, see, child in the orphanage, finally sees that family and says, 
Maybe they're the ones. He's been waiting for the family to adopt him. Maybe they're the ones. Prodeca style. Or for some, especially the poor, they will say this. This man of God's prayer or anointing will eventually bring me blessings. That's what happened to that maid, a sin. And it's precisely because the poor are so hopeful, desperately hopeful, that they are vulnerable to counterfeit charlatans, like I was just talking about, counterfeit deliverance. People that will tell them to buy certain kinds of oils and do many different kinds of things, go and pray in a bush, and they get abused. It's because of their desperate hope. They are looking forward to something coming. They are prodecistai. And in this context, there was one, a counterfeit hope as well. You know what his name was? Caesar Augustus, verse 1, the emperor. He had this title called Divus Augustus, which enabled there to be a cult, an imperial cult that was built around him, meaning that they saw him as a god. So there were people that were worshipping him as a god. In fact, there have been inscriptions that have identified him as a god, son of God, and guess what? Even savior. No, in fact, there's even a better one. Legends have it that he was miraculously conceived by a serpent, a Jew, snake. And they said that they hailed him as a god whose birthday was the beginning of, wait for it, good news. Now, the poor know this, that the only God can bring good news to them. They, they don't have, their, their family members are not connected. They don't have a, somebody to be able to call in the corridors of power. And even if they had that, they don't even have credit to call that person. So only God can bring good news to them. But a God like Caesar, who only identifies with the elite, despises the poor. He's a false alternative. And I'll tell you another reason why he's a false alternative. Because everyone who is created cannot be God. They are always false alternatives. Caesar Augustus was created, and he's also mortal. He died, and he has not risen from the dead till today. In other words, his kingship could never have been forever. There is no more Caesar Augustus, and there's no more Roman Empire. He cannot be the alternative that the poor are looking for. No son of God, and no savior, and no bearer of good news. The poor need another son of God. We take our, our attention back to verse 7. It said, Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Notice it didn't say Joseph's. It was Mary's own child. The special nature of this, of this child, who is named Jesus, as we see in verse 21, it says that this was the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Oh, so an angel had visited Mary before he was conceived. Well, that takes us, turn your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 31 to 35. And you see something, I want to bring up two things there. This Jesus is unlike Caesar. Actually, I'll prove to you that for two reasons, that he is a true son of God. For two reasons. One, dynasty. The second, divinity. Say dynasty. And say divinity. Now let's read. Notice in verse 31, it says, You will conceive, this is the angel visiting Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the Most High. Yes, everybody, look. 
in this city, people have angels visiting them all the time. And they tell them that they're going to be great, they're going to be world changers, and all of that. So why, why do we believe Mary? Why should we believe her? And why should she believe this supposed angel? The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Hmm. So let's take this dynasty thing. Because in the Bible, when you say the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, you mean two things. The first one is divinity, is the dynasty. There was a Jewish king, the second Jewish king, called David. He was the greatest king of all. And in 2 Samuel, verse 7 to 14, he wanted to build a temple for God. But God said, you have a very good intention. You won't do it because you have too much blood. Your son after you will build that temple. But because you've decided to build a house for me, I will build a house for you too. By that, he meant a dynasty. And he said that dynasty will last for, that dynasty will lead to an eternal kingdom. There is an offspring of yours that is coming or that will lead to an eternal kingdom. There are two things. He can get an eternal kingdom if, one, his offspring is eternal, or two, he has an offspring that eventually is eternal. David's kingdom can last forever if David's children keep giving birth to children and they keep sitting on the throne, or there is a son of David that comes that never dies again. Dynasty. And I'll get back to that. But the second is divinity. The second is divinity. Now notice, how was this child conceived? Remember, we said it wasn't Joseph's child. So Mary all of a sudden is pregnant. Ah, uh -uh, Mary, what happened? He said, I just got pregnant. He said, how did it happen? I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever met somebody? I met someone who actually gave birth. I was living in Manchester. She gave birth to a child, they asked her. She said she never knew she was pregnant. To which everybody started laughing. You think we were born today. <laughs> but that was what happened with Mary. How is it possible that Mary had a child without knowing a, a man? Well, it's very simple, verse 34. Because Mary herself was wondering, how am I going to have a child seeing I'm a virgin? How would this be, Mary asked. Since I'm a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One born will be called the Son of God. This is the mystery of Christmas. That the Son of God himself is divine. You see, as Christians, we believe that God is one, but God is three persons. And so what happened here is that the Father has sent the Son but the son was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a woman so that the person that came was both divine and human as well. He is the son of God because he is God himself. And his father is God. But he's a God who is a human being. Now why is this good news? Especially to the poor. Because, you see, unlike Caesar Augustus, who would have in his court very wealthy, noble people, when God's son came into this world, he did not become the child of, I don't know, Barack Obama. He didn't become the child of Jeff Bezos. Who did he become the child of? This poor, lonely family. He was conceived by poor people. And contrary to what a lot of people are telling, uh, tell us nowadays, he was very poor. In this book, 958, it says that foxes have uh, dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
And in his ministry, when he started his ministry, the first day of his ministry, listen to what he said. He quoted from the book of Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? The poor. A God who is the creator of the whole world comes into this world not as a prince or a king, but comes as a poor person born in a manger. He becomes a carpenter and then he starts his ministry with the poor. That is either totally ludicrous or that could only be God. And so because he is God, he is the true king. Remember, Augustus was seen as the son of God, a king, and a savior. But look at what the angels announced to the shepherd in, chap in this, uh, chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. But the angels said to them, do not be afraid. Why? I bring you good news. So Augustus is not, the birth of Augustus is not good news. I cannot think about how the birth of somebody who was conceived by a serpent is good news, but I don't know. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. Some people do this thing, something I call sanctification by poverty. That because somebody is poor, all of a sudden the person is closer to God. Or because somebody is rich, that means the person is totally bad. The Bible does not do this. We must not romanticize the poor. I know poor people who too commit evil. They swindle people. They trample upon people. They beat their wives. They kill uh, fellow poor people as well. The reason why Jesus is bringing good news to the poor is not because the poor are great. It's because the poor themselves also need deliverance. But the thing we can learn, apart from being compassionate with the poor, what we can learn from the poor is that they are a window. Their material poverty, their economic poverty is a window into our spiritual poverty. While Christmas is good news, the coming of Jesus into this world is good news, is that we understand like the poor that our condition is so bad that we cannot come out of it without grace. Somebody coming to lift us up. And this is why Paul can say about Jesus, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. What does he mean by that? He's not talking about Jesus becoming just materially poor so that you can become materially rich. That is wrong. He's saying this, and this is really what the good news is. The good news starts at Christmas, but it doesn't end there. Remember, we said that the reason why Mary couldn't offer, what was she meant to offer normally? What, if you had the money, what would you have offered for your purification? A lamb. And doves. Now, she had doves, but she didn't have a lamb. She couldn't afford a lamb. Why? Because she was poor. But you see, the child that was with her, she didn't understand, was the lamb himself that God had provided. It's good news to the poor because he doesn't ask the poor to provide a lamb for themselves. This Savior that was born came and took the scourge of sin that the poor spiritually and economically deserve. 
This Jesus left the host of heaven, became poor, and went and suffered the consequences of our spiritual poverty on the cross. And now, after he died on the cross, unlike Augustus, who is still in the grave with his bones, this Jesus rose again so that we can understand that he is going to set up a kingdom. He has already started it, but he's going to come back one more time to set up a kingdom which is just, which is equitable, which has no spiritually poor or economically poor people. We can bank on this because Jesus rose from the dead again. And this is the good news of Christmas, that we have a Savior, a Savior who fulfills all the longings, our protectest eye. He came once. He's died. He's risen again. Have the herald angel sing, but again, we look forward to his coming. We protect his second coming. Let me end with this from Titus 2, verse 11 to 3. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. First coming. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. While we wait, protect for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is all about. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, Love Lagos.